The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Alex has the night off, and tonight NBC News is projecting that Republicans will take control of the House of Representatives next year. NBC News now projects that when all the votes are counted, Republicans will hold 221 seats in the next Congress with a margin of error of plus or minus two seats. Now, this will likely translate into a narrow, single-digit majority. Republicans were long predicted to win control of Congress's lower chamber this year. But no one expected that the election would be this close or that the Republican majority would be so slim in a year when forecasters predicted much larger Republican gains. And part of the reason for this slim majority was an unexpected number of endangered House Democrats who beat back Republican challenges and Democrats who won races in unexpected places. Now, to understand how and why this happened, We have to go back to last year, specifically the day before Valentine's Day last year. It was a Sunday, but Congress was still in session because that was the day that House impeachment managers were concluding their case against Donald Trump for inciting a violent insurrection that had taken place five weeks earlier on January 6th. It looked like they were about to be finished when, um, in fact, it looked like all the arguments were done. They were going to move on to the final Senate vote over whether or not to convict Donald Trump when the lead House impeachment manager, the congressman, Jamie Raskin, dropped this bombshell. Last night, Congresswoman Jamie Herrera Butler of Washington State issued a statement confirming that in the middle of the insurrection, when House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy called the president to beg for help, President Trump responded, and I quote, Well, Kevin, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. We would like the opportunity to subpoena Congresswoman Herrera regarding her communications with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and to subpoena her contemporaneous notes that she made regarding what President Trump told Kevin McCarthy in the middle of the insurrection. The House impeachment managers wanted to call the Republican congresswoman to be a witness in their case against Donald Trump. Congresswoman Herrera Butler was one of the 10 Republican members of the House who had voted to impeach Donald Trump just a few weeks earlier. And she had good reason to. As you heard Congressman Raskin say there, Jamie Herrera Butler was a witness to Donald Trump siding with the Capitol rioters over Kevin McCarthy while the attack was still underway. In the end, the House impeachment managers did not call Congresswoman Herrera Butler to be an impeachment witness. Instead, they entered into the record a written statement from the Republican congresswoman describing what she had heard Donald Trump say. And later that same day, Donald Trump was acquitted in the Senate and the impeachment trial ended. But it was not over for Republican Congresswoman Jamie Herrera Butler. Back in her home district in Washington state, local Republicans voted to censure her for having the audacity to tell the truth about what she heard that day. And former President Trump made it his mission to make sure that Jamie Herrera Butler did not stay in Congress. Trump opposed her in her Republican primary and instead endorsed this guy, Joe Kent, 
Joe Kent, interesting character, an election denier who falsely claimed that the January 6th attack, quote, looked like an intelligence operation, end quote. He called the January 6th rioters political prisoners. He vowed, if elected to Congress, that he would investigate and defund both the FBI and the Justice Department. Now, here's something interesting. Many Democrats in the Republican-leading district in southern Washington decided to pounce on this opportunity. They thought Kent was a vulnerable opponent. And so some Democrats made the decision to vote for Kent in Washington's jungle primary system to help elevate an election denier to a top two finish in the hopes of later defeating him in the general election. As a result, Democratic candidate Marie Glusenkamp Perez and Joe Kent advanced to the midterm elections, ending Jamie Herrera Butler's six-term run in Congress. Joe Kent later lost the general election in that Republican-leading district to Glusenkamp Perez, an auto shop owner whose practical and targeted economic message appealed to Republicans and independent voters in the district, as well as to Democrats. As the Seattle Times wrote, where Kent, uh, where Kent rewrote the history of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, Glusenkamp Perez talked about apprenticeship and job training. Where Kent wanted to prosecute Anthony Fauci for murder, Glusenkamp Perez wanted more support for small businesses. Where Kent wanted a national abortion ban, Glusenkamp Perez said she wanted to protect both abortion rights and gun rights. The polling data website, 538, gave her just a 2% chance of winning that election. But now Marie Glusenkamp-Perez is headed to Congress. We saw a similar thing happen in Michigan's 3rd District, where another Republican who voted to impeach Trump, this man, Congressman Peter Meyer, lost his primary race to a Trump-backed election denier. And that Trump-backed election denier went on to lose the general election to the Democrat, Hillary Shulton. Now, if there's any question about the role that Trump played in those Democratic victories, just look at what's happening in California right now. The congressman, David Valadeo, was another one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump over January 6th. But unlike many of the others, Congressman Valadeo did not lose his primary race. And NBC News has yet to call that race. But right now, with nearly uh, half the votes in, David Valadeo is leading his Democratic opponent by five points. In district after district, Trump-backed challengers lost their races to Democratic candidates who defied expectations with smart campaigns, even when the polls and the parties had all but counted them out. Those newly elected Democrats have charted a path for others to follow now that Trump has announced his candidacy for president in 2024. So what do these winners tell us about how they did it? Joining us now is one of those Democrats, the Congresswoman-elect, Marie Glusenkamp-Perez from Washington's 3rd Congressional District. Congresswoman-elect, congratulations. Thank you for being with us tonight. Were you surprised? I was here in this very room with uh, Steve Kornacki when we, we called the race for you, and it was described as an upset. It was, uh, it was an unexpected win. Was it unexpected to you? I, I would not describe it as unexpected. I, I know the district. I, you know, I live here. I'm, I'm a fifth-generation Washingtonian. And this is a district that has a proud history of sending independents to Congress. I mean, one thing I would challenge is that, you know, in, in our, our data actually shows that many, many Democrats actually voted in the primary with Jamie Herrera-Butler to support her um, impeachment vote. I, I underperformed, actually, in the primary substantially, because in our district, we have many Americans who are standing up for the middle of the road. That's, that's what we're known for in southwest Washington. And that's part of what made Joe Kent's ascendancy so improbable and so miscalculated.
So this is interesting. When you say you sort of underperformed and a lot of Democrats uh, voted for Jeremy uh, Herrera Butler, your path to victory, which that that uh, article that I just quoted from describes, is kind of like an escape room. You had lots of little clues to tell you how to how to campaign and how to succeed. So when you say you're not surprised, it's on the basis of a bunch of little things that you saw that Joe Kent was improbable, that uh, that Jamie Herrera Butler did appeal to independents and some Democrats and that you knew that the issues that you would campaign on would be appealing to your constituents. That's right. I mean, I think we're all hungry for a Congress that looks more like America, for people that want to fix things in our country, build bridges, not burn them down. You know, and, uh, you know, I, I really respect the principled stance Congressman Herrera Butler took in, in her vote. And, um, you know, I got in this race to stand up against the political extremes. And, and that's why I'm so proud to have seen the district. You know, we, we were outspent actually 40 to 1 in the primary. That's part of part of the equation here. In the general, so many moderate Republicans, so many independents, and so many Democrats really got behind us and propelled us to the front of this race. I I know you didn't mean it as a cliche when you say that people want people who fix things. You actually fix things. This is actually your job. That's (laughs) right. That's right. Yeah. We, you know, we're an independent auto shop. Um, we fix cars. We fix the cars of middle America, people who are just trying to get to work, whose catalytic converters have been stolen, whose emergency funds are going to be wiped out by petty crime. I mean, this is what, you know, frankly, a lot of America looks like right now. So you didn't delve into, obviously, you had an opponent who was a, a, a bit of a conspiracy theorist, more than a bit, and an election denier. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things that, that um, Republicans used against Democrats in this past election, two things, really, the inflation issue and, uh, and, and, and culture wars. You, you know one of them very well. Obviously, inflation is something you deal with. You are a small business owner. Nobody ever gets a bill for repairing their car that they think is the right amount or, or not <laughs> twice as or three times as much as they want. And you didn't get drawn into culture wars. Tell me how you you skirted these issues. Uh, Just talking about what matters to people. I think we are all really tired of the political agenda being set by Twitter. You know, we want good schools. We want a, a we want to have the cops show up when we call them. You know, I've had my building broken into four times this year. I mean, that gets expensive. And we can't afford to keep going down this road of polarization because, you know, our, our kids need an America that has a level playing field for small businesses, for public schools, uh, for home ownership. All of that stuff deeply matters for the long term economic health and the health of our democracy. So tell me about these issues now, because you are not going to be part of the majority, but you come there with a a deep understanding of these issues. Inflation and the economy continue to be the top issue for people. You deal with both of them, right? You deal with the fact that we have low unemployment. We've got rising wages. We have inflation. It's part of the reason people repair cars uh, that otherwise they'd get rid of or do something else. What do you want to see done so that you've got you stand a stronger chance and and, and Democrats stand a stronger chance uh, versus Republicans in the House in 2024? Well, I am here um, to be an advocate for middle America. And I think one of the, the bleeding edge of that is something known as right to repair laws, laws that give consumers and, and independent manufacturers, you know, uh, shops like mine, um, people that own iPhones, uh, home medical equipment, the, the ability to fix their own stuff that give people who work in the trades an ability to have a level playing field um, to avoid consumer waste. Um, electronic waste, those are all critical issues when we look at the long-term economic health. 
Um, and, and part and parcel of that is ensuring that we support career and technical education. I'm part of the generation where our best trade schools all got turned into computer programming schools. I don't know how many computer programmers you hired last week, but I bet many people watching this are on a wait list for an electrician, a carpenter, yep. a plumber. And those are jobs that can't be exported. They, they, they can't be offshored. We've got to do the work that it takes in the long term to bring back the trades in America. So do you think you can you can get these discussions prioritized in this polarized world where decisions are made on Twitter and things are culture wars and we have conspiracy <laughs> theorists all around us? Because everything you're saying should be music to sort of every American's ears, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum. Right. These these literally are the things that are going to solve solve our economic problems. Do you do you know enough about the process to think that you can prioritize these things uh, in your caucus? Yeah, I mean, listen, I didn't run for Congress assuming I would be in the majority. I mean, I, I was clear-eyed coming into this that it takes bipartisanship to be effective in Congress, and it ought to. So I think the sort of binary thinking of, like, are they R's or D's in control? We've got to walk away from that. We've got to walk away from being cheerleaders for our party and start being advocates for our district. And and that's why I'm here. And that's why people sent me and not a better funded uh, candidate to Congress. So it's about finding people that, um, you know, are working in swing districts that are there to show up to do the hard work and not stand behind, you know, party leadership. What happens when Republicans get the message that that came through from your election and don't put a Joe Kent up, put a Jamie Herrera Butler up? Are you confident you would have won that race? Well, I did not get in this race to beat Jamie Herrera Butler. I will tell you that much. Um, but I, I my you know, my real hope in, in running this race is that it's not about me as an individual candidate, but it's a clear message to both parties, frankly, to stop going out and finding candidates that can self-fund and go out and find candidates mm. who work for a living, who work in the trades, who have grease under their fingernails, who worry about making their mortgage payments, who, you know, aren't out buying new cars all the time. People that really want to fix stuff. And it's going to take grassroots work from both political parties. Uh, to do that work. I, I want to ask you one thing. You, you, you don't you, you use Twitter very judiciously. You're not sort of looking for uh, retweets and Twitter fame. But you did tweet that rural Democrats are almost an endangered species now. And I think we need mm -hmm. to take a real hard look at why that is. What do you mean? And, and, and how do you fix that? Well, you know, specifically where I live, we've had a lot of um, timber issues, I think, that have alienated Democrats in rural communities. You know, I'm um, a fifth generation, come from five generations of loggers in Washington state. Um, and I, 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 my sense is that so many Democrats come into rural communities with postgraduate degrees and they try to explain stuff to us. And that gets really old really quick because in rural communities, we know stuff that um, those folks don't. And, and I think it takes listening and not assuming you know how to fix our problems with what without understanding what the real problems are. Like, I actually get my internet from a radio tower. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be the only member of Congress who doesn't have broadband internet at home. And so I'm really tired of having people try to fix my problems without listening to me about what my problems really are. Congresswoman-elect, thank you uh, for joining us tonight. Thank you for telling us about yeah. your road to victory. The Congresswoman-elect from Washington's 3rd Congressional District, Marie Glusenkamp-Perez. Thanks for making time for us tonight. Thank you. All right, we've got much, much more to come tonight. Next, Senator Elizabeth Warren joins us to discuss the unprecedented bipartisan vote by the Senate today that puts the country one step closer to codifying same-sex marriage. And the response to Donald Trump's announcement was so lackluster, 
His own followers were desperate to leave the room, but they weren't allowed to. We'll have details ahead. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. On this vote, the yeas are 62, the nays are 37. Three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn having voted in the affirmative. The motion is agreed to. The motion is agreed to. Today, the United States Senate moved one step closer to passing the Respect for Marriage Act. It's a landmark bill that would provide federal protections for same-sex marriages. It was a procedural vote, but the fact that the bill cleared this initial hurdle shows that it's got a good chance of becoming a law. Take a look again at that final tally. 62 to 37. Senate Democrats needed 10 of their Republican colleagues to vote with them to break a filibuster and begin debate on the bill. In the end, 12 Republicans joined them. It's refreshing and dare say inspiring to see this level of bipartisanship in Washington, to see Republicans voting with Democrats first in the House and now in the Senate to get something as important as this done. It deserves to be celebrated. But beyond that, this is a big deal for civil rights and equality in this country. It's hugely relevant in the wake of the Supreme Court's June decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, a judicial precedent that most Americans believed was safe until it collapsed. And since the collapse of Roe, we've seen a steady erosion of abortion rights with full bans in 13 states and major restrictions in four others. And Justice Clarence Thomas, in his concurring opinion on Roe, was not bashful when he suggested that the court could, quote, reconsider its rulings on a number of precedents, including same-sex marriage. All these factors made the Senate's procedural vote today at small step a major move toward enshrining and protecting same-sex marriage. And it is these small steps collectively that help to move the needle forward. Joining us now is the Senator Elizabeth Warren, a Democrat from Massachusetts. Senator Warren, it is great to see you again. Thank you for being with us tonight. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Senator, let's talk about uh, this, uh, 62 to 37. It is a procedural vote. It doesn't always go the same way in the final vote. Uh, but this now looks like it is actually on its way to becoming a law. Tell me your thoughts on this. This is not exactly codifying same-sex marriage. It, it basically says the federal government has to respect a marriage that was performed in the state that it was performed in. That's right. And it's Clarence Thomas who alerted us to the importance of doing this. Uh, and so now we've built a safety net in case this extremist Supreme Court decides to overrule the laws that say that uh, the case law, Obergefell, that say that uh, we're going to respect marriage, whoever you love. Uh, but another thing that this does that really is terrific is it gets rid of an old federal law, I say old, about 20 years old, called the Defense of Marriage Act. 
that is still enshrined in federal law that says marriage is only between one man and one woman. And so a nice piece of this is to say we're putting that behind us and we are building a net toward respecting all people, whoever you love, we're going to respect your marriage. That's how it should be. What, does it say anything to you about bipartisanship? There were Republicans not only involved, but as co-sponsors to this bill. Is this yes. just because of the specific issue or does this should this be a harbinger? Is this a, a, a canary in a very good coal mine about the fact that something might actually happen in this U.S. Senate? Well, as you know, uh, a single incident does not make a trend line. I would love to see it repeated again and again. But I really do feel like on this one, there's something very special about it, and that Americans across this country have lived with equal marriage for a long time now. You know, I come from Massachusetts, where we were the first state in the union to recognize equal marriage. And I think it's been a case of Across the political spectrum, more people saying what's right is right. And that means two people who love each other can get married and they will be treated with respect. I, I love this moment. Is there a model in here? for abortion. We've seen abortion questions, uh, ballot measures now in uh, in several states, and they have succeeded regardless of who put them on and how they were worded, uh, which leads some people to think that maybe there's a, a, a voter inspired and protected set of protections for uh, abortion as opposed to a court protected one. Do you do you see a parallel or a possibility there? Well, I, I see one parallel, and that is the a very large majority of Americans believe in equal marriage, and a very large majority of Americans believe in access to abortion. Um, the differences, or, or let's do one more. We have a Supreme Court that doesn't believe in either one of those, and a Supreme Court that says it is their opinion that should matter, not the opinions of the American people, not what it is that we want. Legislatively, it is the case now that you could never, I don't think, we can get an abortion ban in place, but, but boy, there is an aggressive fight back. You saw that Lindsey Graham has proposed a nationwide mm -hmm. ban on abortion. So it seems to me that on abortion, it is still at this moment much more hotly contested, notwithstanding the fact that the evidence from people across this country overwhelmingly says access to abortion should be a protected right. It is part of health care. It is part of economic um, uh, self-determination. It is part of having control over one's own life. But, boy, we're still getting a lot of pushback from the Republicans on that. It, it is noteworthy, though, that nobody got on Lindsey Graham's bus. Uh, with that suggestion yeah. that, that, that uh, Republicans, someone described it to me as, as uh, you know, the fall of Roe not being the dog that caught the car, but the dog that slammed into the car. And it is not it has not turned out to be a winning proposition for Republicans. Yeah, it is. It is true. And I think there's a larger message here about doing the things that the American people would like to see us do. I think that 
Access to abortion is one of those. I think the economic measures we take, I think that when we voted for the Inflation Reduction Act and we actually put in place $35 uh, insulin cap or said that billionaire corporations are going to have to pay a minimum tax, those are also things that are very, very popular. And that is one of the reasons that Democrats did so much better in the midterms than any of the pundits and Washington insiders and even pollsters had predicted. Let's talk about Georgia. This thing's not over yet. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of people who thought Republicans would be less invested in, particularly in Herschel Walker, if, if this was not about the balance of power in the Senate. Uh, but there are a lot of Democrats who think they should be more invested in Raphael Warnock at this moment in order to get some of the things you just talked about done, because a 50-50 Senate still does not give progressive priorities the priority uh, that, that someone like you would, would hope that they would have. Look, I very much hope that Raphael Warnock wins his reelection. But the number one reason for that is because he is a good and decent man. I sit near Raphael uh, in the Senate and I watch him day after day as he fights for the people of Georgia. He fights for what is right. He's one of the people who led the battle to try to get a $35 cap on insulin uh, costs for seniors. One of the people who led the battle to make sure that health insurance was more affordable and to get cuts in the cost of health insurance. Um, Raphael is a man who lives his values every single day. And it he brings that to the United States Senate. And so I'll just be honest. It is the number one reason that I hope he is reelected. He is a good man and Georgia will be well served if he's here. And so will the rest of the United States of America. Let's speak for a moment about another man who lives his values every day. Donald Trump has declared that he is running for president in 2024. He had a bit of a lackluster launch to that uh, uh, campaign last night. There are apparently people at the exits mm -hmm. trying to get out. Uh, there were conservative outlets that did not indicate their support for him. Uh, there was a competing network across the road that kept dipping out of the announcement, something that they, people would never do in the past. Is it your... Um, analysis that Donald Trump is losing some of his luster and his hold on the Republican Party and possibly the country? Look, we beat him in 2020. We beat him in 2022. And we can beat him again if he's going to run for president, if he's the Republican nominee. I, I have given up on predicting when the <laughs> Republicans will finally turn away from Donald Trump. I, no, I mean that. I, shoot, I'm one of those people that back when he said the things he said after Charlottesville, I thought, oh, Republicans are at least going to start distancing themselves from him. And I, I was wrong. Uh, but I thought for sure uh that when all that came out the first time he was impeached, that there would be Republicans who would distance themselves. I was wrong. I thought on January 6th, though, with the insurrection, this is surely it. This is surely the case that there will be no Republicans in elected positions in leadership who will still stand with Donald Trump. And again, obviously, that was not the case. So, um, you know, he seems to keep coming back and there seems to be some ongoing love affair between Donald Trump and Republican leadership that I genuinely do not understand. I 
I just, I do not understand how you, you in and this a lot country, of the country they can embrace a man like this. You and a yep. lot of the country remain confused about this. Good to see you again, Senator. Thank you for being with us tonight. It's good to see you. Take Senator care. Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts. All right. When we come back, the Trump announcement that was supposed to be, we were just discussing, the most important day in American history, according to him, only it wasn't. Even the MAGA crowd tried to leave but couldn't. And with the election over, the Georgia prosecutor's investigation of Donald Trump moves into high gear. We're going to be uh, talking about that when we come back as well. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Before he gave his 2024 presidential campaign announcement speech, the former president Trump had declared his hope that it would be Quote, one of the most important days in the history of our country. Last night, though, Fox News appeared not to share that assessment. Rather, they kept cutting away from it over and over again. Remember I sent to Angela? Remember Angela? Do you remember Angela? Nobody's remembering her now. Angela right, Merkel, just joining us, here. President Trump in Mar-a-Lago announcing his 2024 presidential run. Uh, we're going to go back to the speech in just a minute. And as Sean said, President Trump continues to speak. He spoke uh, now almost for about 57 minutes or so. Uh, 2024 is off and running. We're going to dip back in and see what he's still saying. Billy the Kid got almost done. Jesse James, no. Eric Trump got more subpoenas. Now we're going to go back to former President Trump when news warrants. Um, I guess news never warranted because Fox never actually did cut back to the former twice impeached insurrectionist former president. Trump's announcement speech was so long that crowds reportedly started forming at the exits in the back of the room while Trump was speaking, although security had already told everyone that no one could leave before the president made his own exit. Now, that detail about folks trying to leave, which was originally reported by ABC News, that detail on its own would be one thing. But look who ran with it. Conservative outlets like the Washington Examiner made headlines out of it, mocking the president they used to adore. It was actually kind of shocking this morning to see how many conservative outlets dunked on and downplayed Trump's speech. He was the front page of the Murdoch-owned New York Post today, referring to Trump's declaration that he's running for president of the United States as just, quote, Florida man makes announcement, a story, by the way, that was buried deep in the paper on page 26. Here's the editorial board response from the conservative National Review. The headline simply reads, no, with a period after it. It's pretty amazing watching the same conservative media that fawned over Trump's every move for the past six years turn on him. But it's even more amazing that they're not alone. Today, Axios reported that GOP megadonor Stephen Schwarzman, one of the co-founders of the private equity firm Blackstone, has ditched Trump. Quote, 
time for the Republican Party to turn to a new generation of leaders. And then tonight, CNBC reported that another GOP mega donor, Ronald Lauder, heir to the Estee Lauder fortune, he too has ditched Trump. That makes three GOP mega donors dropping Trump in the past two weeks. As for the former president's support within the leadership of the Republican Party itself, today was a rough day for Trump. It's a free country. The president's entitled to announce his intentions uh, whenever he desires. But uh, I honestly believe uh, that uh, we'll have better choices come 2024. You know, I, I don't think anybody better could choices have, than Donald Trump. Uh, I do. The way I'm going to go into this presidential primary season is to stay out of it. I don't have uh, a dog in that fight. I don't have a dog in that fight. The leader of the Republicans in the Senate saying he doesn't have a dog in the fight of the leadership of his own party and Trump's own former vice president endorsing hypothetical candidates that have not even announced uh, that they're running over endorsing Trump, the guy who chose him. As for the newly reelected Republican leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, reporters swarmed him literally all day asking for a statement on Trump's announcement, and he refused to say anything. So today's just been brutal for the former president. And you'd think that without the conservative press on his side, without big money, GOP donors on his side, without the leadership of the Republican Party on his side, you'd think he could at least turn to his own family, right? Well, think again. This was the Instagram story posted by President Trump's eldest daughter, Ivanka, after his speech last night. Quote, I love my father very much. This time around, I'm choosing to prioritize my young children and the private life that we are creating as a family. I do not plan to be involved in politics. It's got to hurt. We're barely 24 hours into Trump's newest bid for the White House. Strong showing so far. Excited to see where it goes. With people's minds already moving toward 2024, Donald Trump officially announced his third run for president yesterday, likely to get ahead of any other potential candidate, but also perhaps as part of a strategy to get ahead of the legal jeopardy that he's facing over his actions in the aftermath of the 2020 race, including in Georgia, where just yesterday the governor, re-elected Brian Kemp, testified before a special grand jury in Fulton County. District Attorney Fonnie Willis has been investigating Trump's effort to overturn the results of the 2020 election in that state. Of course, you'll remember just a few days before a pro-Trump mob launched an attack on the U.S. Capitol, audio of a call between then-President Trump and the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, leaked to the public. And we learned that the lame duck president asked the top elections official in that state to, quote, find 11,780 votes, which would be just one more vote than the 11,779 margin that he lost by in Georgia. Fulton County District Attorney Willis has been conducting a criminal investigation since February of 2021 into that call and other efforts by the former president and his allies to subvert the vote in Georgia. The investigation had appeared to come to a halt during the midterm campaign season, but it appears to have moved back into full swing this week. In addition to hearing from Georgia Governor Brian Kemp yesterday, the grand jury in Fulton County heard from Cassidy Hutchinson today. And after trying very hard to avoid doing so, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham is slated to testify before the grand jury next week and former House Speaker Newt Gingrich the week after. Not to mention, Michael Flynn was ordered by a Florida court yesterday to testify, but his lawyers have indicated they are going to try and block that from happening. Mark Meadows has also been ordered by a court to testify at the end of the month, but timing on that could change. So how might the ramping up of special grand jury proceedings in Georgia affect the former president turned 2024 presidential candidate? 
Well, about a year ago, the Brookings Institution released a report with the known facts of the investigation in Georgia gathered from publicly available evidence. They published a second edition of that report this week, concluding that, quote, Trump is at substantial risk of criminal prosecution in Fulton County. Joining us now is the author, one of the authors of that report, Gwen Keyes Fleming. She's the former district attorney of DeKalb County, Georgia, which is right next door to Fulton County. She's known Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis for years. Ms. Keyes Fleming, thank you for joining us this evening. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So for uh, we lay people who don't know anything about these grand juries and prosecutions on the basis of everybody who's testified so far, the information that we know publicly how close do you think D.A. Willis is to completing her investigation? Well, I think there's some reports that she's looking to make some final decisions by the end of the year. And when you think about the time left in this month for the special grand jury to be able to wrap up the witnesses that you just described, uh, possibly publish their final report uh, between now and the end December, that still gives the district attorney time in December to go before a regular criminal grand jury. If the special grand jury decides that there is or makes the recommendation that there's sufficient evidence to bring charges. So, you know, our lawyer experts on these shows always tell us, don't assume an outcome, never assume what is going to happen. Uh, could you help me assume what is going to happen? Do you think we could expect an indictment of the <laughs> former president? Well, I think if prosecutors could assume what could happen, that they uh, would love to have that gift. You're absolutely right. There is no way to tell uh, what these 23 or so residents are going to conclude in the special grand jury room. I think the district attorney was right to be able to uh, get them to to hear some of the evidence that she has. So this is actually a preview of what a ultimate jury, if it goes that far, would think about her evidence. And so, again, it's it, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what the recommendations are. The Brookings report that we wrote, which, again, is just based on the publicly available evidence. Right. So the D.A. knows a lot more than we do. Uh, we've outlined a few crimes that we think could be salient based on the publicly known facts. That includes things like false statements, uh, conspiracy to commit election fraud, and possibly a RICO indictment. Uh, listen to the, 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 the we, we just talked about the people who we know, again, publicly have been subpoenaed. Uh, the, the Trump world people, Mark Meadows, Lindsey Graham, uh, Michael Flynn, Newt Gingrich. Uh, it looks like she's going to get testimony probably from all of them. There are, as you said, some efforts to delay, but she'd like to get it all done. Is there anybody we haven't talked about who you think would be central to the investigation who maybe has not been subpoenaed yet? I think folks largely have been subpoenaed. It's a question of whether they will actually testify. And I'm specifically talking about some of the alleged fake electors that she has indicated she wanted to hear from. I think they would be very critical, not only in outlining what their um, actions were in terms of signing those documents and then ultimately being delivered to the National Archives, uh, on January 6th to be counted in lieu of the actual uh, votes from the Biden electors. And so I think those folks, again, not only would, would be able to, to provide insight about their own actions, but also who, if anybody, asked them to participate in this scheme. And that may reach people higher up uh, in the Trump circle. But again, 
none of us know that at this point. Only the special grand jury uh, would have that information and the district attorney, as she hopes to hear and gather more testimony. Is it your sense that Donald Trump's announcement that he's running for president again in any way affects uh, Fannie Willis's investigation or what she plans to do? So the interesting thing is that prosecutors have brought charges against people who have been in elected office or former elected uh, individuals all the time. Now, obviously, this is a special case in terms of reaching a former president. But at bottom line, every district attorney takes an oath to pursue evidence or pursue charges without fear, favor or affection. And that means she'll go forward if she has the evidence without being fearful of uh, the former president, his defense team or whoever else may be opposed to the prosecution. And she's also not going to do it to gain favor with others that may want this prosecution. Being a DA has a high responsibility, and it's her job to be able to protect the integrity of the criminal justice system by following the evidence. And the Fonnie Willis that I know will do exactly that and leave no stone unturned. Well, I know that you have co-authored a report that's based on public information, but the rest of us who have that public information wouldn't have been able to do it without uh, without minds like yours. So we appreciate you not only doing it, but coming and telling us um, how you interpret it. Thank you for being with us. Gwen Keyes Fleming is the former district account, uh, attorney at DeKalb County, Georgia. Thanks for your time this evening. Thanks for having me. All right. Now, with the election over, one Republican governor's cruel stunt returns. That's next. At 6 a.m. today, a bus pulled up to a place I spend a lot of time at, 30th Street Station in Philadelphia. The passengers, nearly 30 asylum seekers, had traveled for days from Del Rio, Texas. One asylum seeker told the Philadelphia Inquirer that they'd been given one small packaged meal. Days of travel. As with all the buses, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has sent to New York, D.C. and Chicago since the spring. His administration intentionally failed to give Philadelphia officials enough notice that the migrants were coming and would likely need food, clothing and shelter. That refusal to coordinate has become the key feature of Abbott's month old, months old stunt, silently moving thousands of migrants across the country like pawns to own the libs. Except this time they used kids as pawns, too. But Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love that is my other home, was ready with food, clothing, transportation to intake centers, medical screenings. And that's how city officials learned that one of those children, a 10-year-old girl, needed immediate medical attention. Reportedly, she was dehydrated and fighting a high fever. She and her parents were quickly taken to the emergency room for treatment. This is what happens when governors like Greg Abbott and Florida's Ron DeSantis decide to use human beings as props to score political points. While the dozens of migrants he loaded on that bus to Philadelphia disembarked in 40-degree weather, Governor Abbott sent this letter to President Biden, telling him that the increase in border crossings is Biden's fault, that he has to, quote, reinstate the policies that he eliminated in order to fulfill his constitutional duty to enforce federal immigration laws and protect the states against invasion, end quote. Right, because we have to secure our country from all the dehydrated 10-year-olds who are invading it. This language of invasion, this notion that opportunity in this country is some zero-sum game, that someone finding safety and freedom here takes something away from you or me, it's language we've heard from several defeated Republican candidates across the country leading up to last week's midterm elections. But it's just not true. That approach to immigration is partly why a CDC health order meant to curb the spread of COVID at the border, Title 42, was misused 
to suppress immigration at the southern border for nearly three years. The policy has allowed the Trump and then the Biden administrations to immediately expel migrants before they can request asylum. Just yesterday, a federal judge struck down Title 42. In five weeks, the government will resume processing migrants who are seeking asylum at the border. That's the way it's supposed to work under an international agreement to which the U.S. is party and according to U.S. law. Experts expect a potential increase of migrants at the border once the expulsion policy ends next month. Undoubtedly, that will cause many on the right to yell at Biden uh, a little more, to keep claiming that there's some kind of invasion. In reality, our immigration system has been dysfunctional for some time now under administrations of both parties. We need the kind of immigration reform that the Biden administration and congressional Democrats ran on, not political stunts. That does it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.